On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I really couldn't be better, Tim. I'm really excited about this episode and uh, and the conversation that we have with our very special guest. We do have a special guest. Her name is Jules, and she is of the Riddle Me That True Crime podcast. She recently did a series on the disappearance of Maura Murray. I think it was uh, maybe eight or nine parts. It was uh, pretty intense. Had a lot of guests, had the Murrays on, had Maggie and Art on, and we called her on to Missing to put her on the hot seat because she's over here asking people their opinions, and no one's asked her hers. And uh, and so we felt like we needed to get her on and introduce her to uh, to our audience and really introduce her series to you as well, because I think you should check out her series on her podcast called Riddle Me That. You can follow her on Twitter at Podcast Riddle. And Jules is well-researched, she's well-spoken, and she has a pretty cool background. She's got a PhD in transpersonal counseling, and I found it super interesting to hear where she was at after she did her series on Mora, someone like her who is, uh, again, so well-researched and so thorough with her exploration into the case, the follow-up, I feel, was really necessary, at least for my own curiosity and hopefully for the listener's curiosity as well. That's right. And we talk a little bit about how the tree at Mora's uh, crash site with the blue ribbon has recently been cut down and kind of the effects of that and uh, how sort of upsetting that has been uh, to some of the community. So check that. Check out the Murray site if you want more information on that. That's moramurraymissing.org. And a quick shout-out to Mr. Mike Morford and his Abjack Entertainment Network, his podcast network. They just welcomed Riddle Me That, the true crime podcast, to that network. And check out all of the fine shows that he represents there. But only after you check out our Crawlspace Media Network, uh, Lance, which is at crawlspace-media.com. Very good point, Tim. And be sure to check out all of the new announcements that the Crawlspace Media Network has in store over the next few days, the next couple of weeks. We have some new shows that are joining the network. 
that we are very excited about, quality programs that we are developing in-house, and also shows that are joining, that are already in existence, that we're kind of taking on under our wings. Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on social media at MissingCSM. And follow our new Twitter, which is at Crawlspace Media. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jules. How are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Tim and Lance. I'm happy to be here. Great. Yeah, well, we're happy that you're happy to be here. That makes us happy. Uh, you, <laughs> you've you survived the time in between interviewing us for Maura Murray's disappearance. You survived that uh, few-week period Thank you for putting that out there. Thank you for following up with all of the other great interviews you did. How do you feel about that? How do you feel that went and how much further are you uh, planning on going with that? I feel really appreciative that you two kind of jumped in at the beginning, you know, having James Renner, all these different guests. And then at the end, you know, having Julie and Kurt Murray and also having Art and Maggie was such a great way to cap it off. It answered a lot of questions, but at the same time, I feel like after going through all of that, talking to so many people, so many experts having kind of different takes on things, I'm really no further ahead in knowing what exactly happened to Mora. You know what I mean? No. I think we know. We don't no. know at all. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, actually, we we 100% know what you mean uh, with that. Um, I'm curious, uh, before we jump too deep into Maura Murray uh, topic, I'm, I'm curious, you, you're you a doctor. To, can you tell us a little bit about your education? Well, I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling, so I'm not a psychologist. So ah. basically, transpersonal counseling is like spiritual counseling. So if I wanted to get certified to you know be a therapist, I could, but you don't necessarily have to with the type of degree that I have because it's a different type of counseling. So it's a little more on the metaphysical side, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Um, and uh, and if you don't mind, you're uh, you live in Malaysia. Do you do you mind uh, talking about that a little bit? Yeah. So a few years ago, I think it's actually going on four years. Time just flies. It's crazy. But my husband and I moved here because he works in biomedical sales, so it kind of made sense. And I was doing my schooling online, so we took our dog and we decided to kind of jump across the globe and. It's been really great. I mean, it's sunny here and basically 30 degrees or I don't know what it is for you guys, like 85 degrees every day, something like that. So it's been nice. Well, don't rub it in or anything. Jeez. I know you're like, you're like 30 <laughs> degrees and I'm thinking, oh, we're like, oh, okay. Yeah, us too. Right, yeah. right there with you. <laughs> well, uh, tell us about Riddle Me That, your terrific podcast and what led you to create it. I think like so many different people during the pandemic, I was kind of going through this need to create, right? I like to paint as well, but I felt like I wanted to do something else. And actually your podcast, like Missing More Murray, it was one of the first that I got into kind of around the same time. I, I was kind of late to the game. It was a few years ago and it was yours as well as Serial and My Favorite Murder. I got into those and I was like, I really like to do this. There's so many cases where I feel like I have something to say and maybe it's 
something that's different. Maybe it's something that's the same, but I just felt compelled to create. And I'm really fascinated, like you both are, with unsolved cases, right? Where there is no resolution and, you know, there's families left behind that want answers. And so I don't know, I just felt like in sharing these stories, maybe, you know, creating more awareness around them, you know, as a true crime community, we can, you know, help move it forward with law enforcement and with the investigations. Oh, yeah. And to speak to my podcast, it's all unsolved and missing persons cases. That's really cool. Um, You just said that you maybe hope to move things forward with the case. And um, I'm curious if you have had any, I guess, experience while you've been doing the show with law enforcement and what kind of uh, communication you've had with anyone on that end of these uh, these cases. I've only spoken to former law enforcement so far, so just hoping to bring it more attention to it. Like, I would love to speak to law enforcement who's on a case that I'm working on at that moment. I know it's a little more difficult to form those sorts of relationships. I think more what I meant was, I mean, of course, I would love to do that in the future. But more what I meant is the more attention that is drawn to the case, some of these cases that have gone cold and maybe law enforcement isn't motivated in investigating them, it will apply pressure to law enforcement. And then hopefully they'll move forward because they're incentivized to do so. And you seem to have assembled quite an impressive cast of experts on your airwaves. How did you get in touch with so many experts? I think randomly meeting these people through podcasting, some of them, some of them have their own podcasts, like, you know, Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, she often comes on the show, she's got her own podcast, um, Dr. Shaham Das, he's got a psych for sore minds, um, Gina L. Osborne, who's former FBI, she's got her own behind the crime scene. So a lot of these people I've kind of reached out, like Dr. Val Matamore, who I talk to often, she is a colleague of my husband's. So some of these people I've met through various channels, but yeah, it's it's been really great. And Dr. Ashley Wellman, who I've actually just started a podcast with her and Robin Warder, The Path Went Chilly. So we'll, we'll spin off from the trail went cold, but we met on Twitter randomly as well. And she's become one of my best friends and current like constant collaborator. So it's been really, really great. That's really cool. Well, well done getting that uh, sort of Twitter social circle going. Um, also, how I've been dying to ask you this. How do you get like 100 retweets every episode you drop? I don't know. Um, I'm in retweet groups like that does help a little bit, I guess. But I I don't know. I think I'm just really lucky that I've built some really great friendships with people. And, you know, I've helped people out when they need help. And then they're more motivated to help me out in those sorts of situations. How long have you been doing this? I think like eight months. (laughs) Well, great stuff. That uh, and uh, oh, please tell us a little bit about the panel that you did with Dr. Ashley Wellman and uh, Eric Landine. That was so great. I mean, it was as a response, like right now on my channel, I'm covering doing extended coverage on the death of nine month old Jacob Landine, and that's Eric's little baby brother. And it's a huge injustice there. And I really, really recommend everybody go and listen to Jacob's story. But Eric had decided to reach out to Kendall Ray, who, as many of you may know, is a really, really well-known YouTuber. And she covered the story. And there was an incredible amount of backlash because his mother was basically in a relationship with this man who we'll call John. 
And he ended up being Eric's stepfather later, and he's likely responsible for the death of baby Jacob. But also, he was an incredibly violent person. There was coercive control. There was basically manipulation and domination on every single level. And at the end of the day, rather than taking kind of a compassionate take, I think the loudest voices were those that criticized Eric's mother. And they basically were like, you should have left. Why did you allow this to happen? It's your fault. And so... The panel that we did was a reaction to that because we felt it needed to be touched upon, that it isn't so simplistic as why didn't you leave? Right. That's a little bit too easy uh, of an explanation, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's very simplistic and it's just super reductive for somebody to sit back and be like, oh, yeah, just leave. And there's plenty of reasons that we do it. A lot of it is a defense mechanism as human beings. We like to feel like, you know, we would never be put in that situation. That would never happen to us. And so we gen- we genuinely feel superior and we falsely attribute, you know, through the attribution error, the blame on the victim. And that's very much what Eric's mother was, was a victim. And people seem to forget that. The, the onus and the responsibility should be squarely on the shoulders of the perpetrator, which in this case is John. So where do you, uh, where do you take it from there, just as a uh, producer of these... Um... Of, of of your show and everything where do you where do you go from there i really don't know like i ashley and robin and i just decided we wanted to because we enjoyed working together so much that we wanted to do you know a spinoff of the trail went cold so we decided to do that and you know we're launching next month so that's where we're going with that and then i'm also going to be starting another podcast with dr ashley wellman in august so i don't know it's just kind of Wherever, wherever it takes us. I don't know. I'm really enjoying working with people that I respect and I genuinely like as humans. So I'm just trying to do as much of that as I can and hopefully bring awareness to these stories at the same time. So when you um, approached us for the interview uh, for Moore's disappearance, you're very detailed and, and that I feel is your a very, a very uh, significant strong point for you is to is to be detailed and have a and have a plan a strategy um is that your role with the trail went chilly are you the are you the planner or are you the researcher how do, how do these roles break down between the three of you okay so i'm pretty much do i'm doing the editing and the behind the scenes stuff all of the research has already been done by robin because we're we're using cases that he's already he's already covered right so we're using like one of our So we're doing Blair Adams, Keith Warren, and then Ray Rivera. So these are ones he's covered already. We just basically go through, I go through and kind of rewrite the script, write parts, write different parts for me in there. And then Ashley's reacting. So it'll be Robin and I telling Ashley a story. So the research, research and all that is done. I take care of the editing and all the behind the scenes stuff. And Ashley just kind of, kind of shows up and you know gives her hot take and Robin and I are telling the story and he has done exhaustive research for the trail went cold so the path went chilly is just kind of a really easy segue from you know what Robin's already done and all the hard work he's put in path went chilly sorry I I said trail my bad that's I knew it sounded it sounded wrong when I said it that's why I kind of stumbled over it and I was like that's not what it is even though I'm looking right at it you're uh the the logo for it is great is that the logo the one that's on Twitter yes uh we got this I know we got this artist uh, on Twitter randomly and uh I think it's at Fleshwad YT is her is her Twitter handle and she's really amazing she's done a lot of uh crime and compulsion I think 
uh, Paranormal with V she's done as well. She's done a bunch and I really like them, but of course ours is my favorite. Nice. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. All right. So tell us about what your experience was like when you dove into the Maura Murray case um, for your podcast, covering it. What was what was that experience like? Um, first of all, just on a community level, what did you observe? I observed people who very much view the case through their own kind of paradigm or lens, and they're very, very attached to their theories and their opinions on the case, so much so as it becomes a sense of identity for them. And if you are to challenge that, you're basically challenging who they are as a person and their sense of identity. And that can be a very scary thing for an individual. And you've got a bunch of individuals who are doing this to each other. So it becomes quite a combative environment. So I tried to stay on the periphery as much as I could and kind of observe objectively rather than subjectively inserting myself with an opinion. Because to be honest, I don't know what happened tomorrow and I'm not attached to any one theory. So I had the ability to do that. And I thought that there was a lot of, like, I've met some great people, like meeting you guys was great. Meeting James is great. Art and Maggie and some of the people who are really attached to this case are such nice humans. And I'm so fortunate to have met them. I've met some great people. There's been some negative interactions as well. And, you know, behind the scenes, you guys kind of explained to me that that's pretty much par for the course. So I kind of accepted that. And, you know, once I, it got to a point, it never really got worse. It didn't get to that level with me, but I, I see that it has, you know, with certain other individuals and I know it could be very, very toxic. You said that you uh, stayed on the periphery of that, which was a pretty smart thing to do. Um, was there any a time where you were ever tempted to contribute to something and you pulled back because you realized that four or five steps down the line, it was going to maybe come back, you know, come back at you or or maybe take it to a level or a place that you didn't want it to to go to, you know, something that you're trying to stay away from. Oh, I think that commenting, I think there's a very kind of dangerous thing when you're commenting with regards to Bill Roush. And I think in my episode, particularly with Dr. Ashley Wellman, we didn't neither one of us believed personally that he was you know, responsible for what happened to Mora, but with regards to his pending charges and whatever, it's not that we didn't speak kindly. We just basically said neither one of us would want to date Bill Roush. And I did get a little bit of pushback from certain individuals with regards to that episode. That's sort of when something started. So, yeah, you know, I there is personal feelings with regards to the potential character of certain individuals, but I had I held back for the most part because it really isn't for me to say, and I'm really having to be in the realm of speculation to do so. Right. Okay. Well, that's what would you hear for? Let's. What do you think happened? Let's let's get. What do you think, Patrice Vassi? What do you think? Why? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can take it step by step. Tell us a little bit about uh, speaking with Maggie and Art. That that interview got a little bit uh, fiery at times, didn't it? That was such a great interview. I just love those two so much. I'm so thankful you guys introduced me to them because they were so great. And yeah, I think 
they were frustrated at certain things because I think they personally had had some really negative interactions that like they had themselves described as toxic within the community that had been, you know, detrimental to both of their mental health. And it had kind of forced them to take a step back. And there were so many things that I thought were questions that basically they just answered. They're like, look, we had 6,000 hours that we'd recorded and they basically, or whatever it was, some kind of thousands or hundreds of hours or whatever it was. I think it was hundreds, not thousands, but they'd edited it down to six hours. So you really can't cover everything. And they just answered so many things that you know, and cleared up a lot of things for me that I thought were kind of ambiguous. So that was really great. I mean, just for example, with regards to the police officer who pulled over Mora, right? Going like, okay, well, basically the, I think it was the captain or something Art had spoken to. And he said, yeah, like this guy's the worst. He's not a good officer. He's whatever, right? And he was doing the bare minimum. She should have been breathalyzed. This should have been done. She likely was drinking to get into this kind of crash. And I'm not blaming more. This is something that kids that age do. These are mistakes that people make. But just with regards to those little details, it was so great to have them clear up so much stuff. What was it that really uh, turned up the heat on that? Because, like Tim said, it it got a little heated. But I don't I don't want to say that there was like an argument. Do you think that it was? Maybe you just answered it, and I'm I'm being redundant. Do you think that it was uh, kind of beat down by it already, and they didn't want to go there again? With what? Which part are you referring to? I think what I'm referring to is how passionately Art, especially, and Maggie are opposed to the police conspiracy because they I, they identify with police and law enforcement. They know that these are human beings. And just because a number is written on a piece of paper from dispatch doesn't exactly mean that that is precisely what happened. It's 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 there's a human uh, element in there that can cause an error to be made or or maybe just in something to be like an oversight. Uh, and for years and years, this case has been described as something where at best it was botched by the police. At worst, there was a deep seated conspiracy uh, to cover up the, the disappearance of Moore Murray. Um, do you feel like Art, you know, especially because he is law enforcement, is just sort of done with that? And that's why it goes to a, 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 heat, a heated spot so quickly. Yeah, I feel like he I feel like he's probably just he feels like he does have a you know background in law enforcement. You know, he was you know former U.S. Marshal. So I think that I think even Maggie said it at some point, like he's going to be slightly more you know sympathetic towards that angle than she would be coming in and looking at it. But I still think that he did his due diligence due diligence. And he looked at everything and he said, look, I just think there's nothing to see here. I don't think that law enforcement had anything to do with the disappearance of Maura Murray. Yeah. And he used to be in internal affairs investigations. So I do feel like, uh, yeah. And one thing he said about that was, uh, you know, conspiracies do happen, but when they happen, they're kind of obvious when you come in and you look at it from an internal affairs perspective. Um, and he was like, yeah, it's just nothing there on, on this one. Tell us a little bit about what you feel Maura was going through when she left UMass. Obviously, she was going through some emotional difficulties. We spoke a little bit about that first accident. Can you tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, 
what that could have been like. Yeah, I just think Moore was going through a lot, like transferring schools. She had, you know, the credit card thing kind of hanging over her head. And it was minor, but I think all of these little tiny minor things can kind of compound and they can become a really big thing. And then you've got the incident where, you know, she gets the phone call. She says, my sister, we know that uh, Kathleen Murray had called her, but we also know that she may have been going through something with Bill and there may have potentially been, you know, kind of infidelity on both sides. I can't speak to that with, you know, 100% certainty, but I do know from speaking to Julie Murray, like what she was going through at West Point, she was, you know, having, having a lot of issues. She was, you know, crying and she, was dealing with some disordered eating. And I've spoke to that during my thing as well. I myself have dealt with that in the past. So I'm extremely compassionate to what Maura was going through. And I think those early twenties relationships, I think we've all been in them that are, you know, kind of toxic and you think that it's the right person and it's just, it's not healthy. So I think she's dealing with that. And then she's got this car accident that happens and she totals her dad's car and how much stress was on her. I think from that, I think, with all these other things, it had just become a really, really big thing. I think she had every intention of coming back. She brought her homework. She just needed to get away is sort of how I felt. And she used the excuse that, you know, there was a death in the family. And every single person who's a professor that I spoke to said this is a very common excuse. So I don't make anything of that. I don't shame Maura for that. I think I never used it when I was going to university, but I very well could have. You know what I mean? It's something if it was a bad enough mental health crisis, I could have used that excuse. So I think that Maura was really going through a tough time and she just needed a reprieve. Yes, I can't really disagree with that point of view. I think that's something that, you know, Tim and I always fall like we kind of shake down to that that bit of truth right there, like regardless of whether or not there was a death in the family or a family emergency or no family emergency. The fact is, is she just she needed to get away. You know, that that's one thing I think everyone in this community can agree on is that she needed to get away and maybe she was meeting somebody, maybe she wasn't meeting somebody, maybe she had a uh, a predetermined destination, maybe she was winging it. But what we can all agree on is that she just needed to get away. Yeah, exactly. Like this was a young woman who was in crisis. And, you know, I've gone through something similar before where I felt like I just needed to get away. So I can completely understand with Maura wanting to drop everything and not really communicating it with people because sometimes you tell your best friends everything. But sometimes some things you just don't have the ability to articulate or share those things. And I don't know how much of a sharer Maura was, but I don't get the impression that she was somebody who would just go and share her, you know, deepest, darkest, you know, secrets and feelings with everybody. It just doesn't seem to be the type of person that she was. So she's already in that headspace where she's got to get away. And really, she's risking a lot by, by doing that. She's risking g getting kicked out of school uh, because she might miss a clinical or two. And then she gets into that accident, spins her car out in New Hampshire on Route 112 in North Haverhill. Um, obviously, it, it seems like she tried to get her car started again wasn't able to get the car out of there. She locked the doors, walked away. I mean, those seem like rational things to do, right? She the, made sure the windows were rolled up. She locked the doors, and then she took her keys, took her wallet, and walked away. I feel like she could have been 
worse off at that point. Do you know what I mean? Than when she left. Oh, 100%. Like everything that she's going through, she thinks that she's running towards something that's going to be of comfort. She's going to get this vacation a few days away to be able to clear her head. And then on her way, the one thing that she's relying upon, which is, you know, her car, and we know it's unreliable, but that breaks down on her. It had to just like if it were me personally, like I it would throw me in a complete tailspin. You think, how am I going to get there? It's freezing. Who's going to pick me up? And depending on what theory you ascribe to, if she was, you know, if you think that there's a tandem car, she may have thought, OK, well, somebody else can just pick me up. Or if, you know, there was nobody else and it was a stranger who picked her up, then she's thinking, OK, well, I guess I'm going to eventually have to take a ride with somebody because if I stay out in these elements, I will die. I'm curious if Julie, if you Jules, if you have a uh, a take on what you think happened at that point. I know you said uh, you'd you'd be in the realm of speculation. I guess we all would be. That's um, sort of uh, a lot of the conversations we have about Morris case, um, you know, truthfully. But uh, yeah, I'm just curious about uh, what you think. I think there is the highest probability, and this is a soft lean. It's not like a hard lean towards a stranger abduction, just a crime of opportunity. Somebody took her. I don't know who I can't say, but that's what I soft lean towards. And recently there's been a little bit of uh, news in Mora's disappearance, um, not so much in the location or any sighting of her, but the tree that has been marked for uh, every year since her disappearance, uh, 16 years, um, will not have, well, 17 years because it was marked this year. Uh, but next year it will no longer have the, <laughs> that area will no longer be the area where people will uh, form a vigil for Mora's disappearance because that tree has been cut down. I'm just curious. I'm wondering what you think about that tree coming down and the significance of that. Because you said you are a spiritual counselor and you are into the like the metaphysical nature of things, how do you think this affects the community and the and the disappearance overall? Is this a, is this a significant moment? Absolutely. The tree becomes almost an archetypal image. It becomes this kind of last vestige of Mora, where everybody can go and be with Mora. There is no gravestone. There is no body. And my heart breaks for the Murrays and for everybody who wants to go to that tree and attaches some kind of physical significance and connection to Mora. To take that away is to then make this connection that maybe felt strong in a physical sense, and you're making it extremely more tenuous. It's just, it's not there anymore. And I'm sure it's, it had to have been heartbreaking to see something that you've been able to go visit and you know, it's a site that your sister was last seen at, or that your friend was last seen at, or your cousin, or however somebody is connected. Maybe it's somebody, maybe you don't know Mora, but you feel a great connection to her and you've enjoyed going to visit the tree to be close to her. To take that away, I don't know. I understand why they did it, probably because I'm sure it clogged up traffic and I'm sure that there was probably more car accidents. There's probably a practical reason that underscores their decision to do so. But at the heart of it, it just, it makes makes me really sad. It does. It makes me sad, too. And I'm so glad to hear you say that. I've been wanting to talk about it since it happened, because for years we've been saying that that area should not be. And we're not family members, so we can't, you know, 
say anything. Uh, but our opinion was that that area shouldn't really be the area where a vigil is held every year. First of all, it's it's not a safe stretch of road. It's literally a hairpin turn. And if you're there in February, you're just risking um, something bad to happen. There should have been some other spot that could memorialize Mora that people could go to and 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 light their candles and say a prayer for the family, say something for Mora, show their respect, leave pictures, leave notes. I think that should have been done years ago. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. And this tree became, uh, maybe you can help me out with the wording on this, was supposed to be this wonderful spot where people could go, but it never was supposed to be that. Like, it, it never was because because that location didn't allow it to be what people wanted it to be. Does that make, did that make any sense? Like it's still in a very bad location and it represents a very bad thing that happened to a very good person and a very good family. And I feel like it was just like a momentum that couldn't be stopped. Like that tree, you know, that tree, that tree, that tree, it just became an icon. Yeah, it it really did. And I think that there was a different way that they could have gone about it. I think they could have allowed the family to maybe have the tree, put the tree, you know, encase it in resin, do something with it, put it up almost like a gravestone at a site that's safe, where people can feel like they want to have that connection to Mora, they want to speak to Mora, and it could become symbolic and you know, it could become somewhere that somebody could, the family could visit, people could go and visit. But like you said, it just, you're basically, the site is putting lipstick on a pig. You're basically, that's what they're doing with the site. You're trying to make it this beautiful thing where people can go and connect with more. But the reality is it's very, very dangerous. This is a site where she got into a car accident. She could have died here. You know what I mean? Her last moments were spent here. So this is a site that has a carries a great deal of negativity and pain, but you're also trying to tie in this like really positive spiritual kind of last connection to Mora aspect. So I get what you're saying. And I agree that it should have been kind of transferred to another spot early on, a safer spot for mourners and a safer spot for those who wanted to connect to Mora. Yeah, for sure. I mean, everyone knows that that's the area where she disappeared, but not a lot of people know the uh, track that she ran on where she won a medal when she was in high school. You know what I'm saying? Like, that could be a place where people could go and memorialize her. No one knows her favorite trail that, that she would hike in the White Mountains. They don't know uh, a, a campground that she would go to. There are so many spots where they could put up a plaque or put something up to memorialize her. And the thing about that area, not to keep harping on it, but... No one who lived there wanted that to be the spot where people stopped to pay respects. The residents there, even the even the, the nicest residents there would say it's just dangerous. Like we don't mind people doing it, but people are putting themselves at risk. You had that end and then you had the other end where people would rope off areas so no one would stop there at all. And, you know, I'm guilty of saying back in the day, like, wow, that's really, you know, disrespectful to the family. But as you keep looking uh, or digging into this and 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 kind of taking a step back, I guess, taking a, a, a wider view of it, you realize what it was. It wasn't disrespectful. They just didn't want that to be there because they they that wasn't what they signed up for when they moved there. And they that's not part of their neighborhood. Uh 
to have that be such an attraction. And you have to respect that too. Oh, absolutely. Like these people, they probably moved there. It's quite a desolate location. There's a certain amount of anonymity. And now you've got video cameras, all these people traipsing through. So there's so many different things to consider. And I think that's a really great point that you made about the running track and the campground. Because Julie and Kurt Murray both spoke about Moore's love of the campground, Jigger Johnson's. Like, it would be great to put up a plaque there, something in memorial of Mora. You know, this was a place that she absolutely loved and they had great family memories there these were happy times yeah and i think that spot you know it's obviously become very symbolic and it's important and i think maybe some of us are kind of having a little bit of trouble sort of understanding what it means to the murrays i think um because no one can really explain what i mean it doesn't mean as much to us as it does to the murrays or you know what i mean I mean, in speaking with Julie Murray, it it literally broke my heart because this is a woman who's had to say stay strong in the face of such trauma. And she describes it, which is something in such a poignant way that has really, really resonated and stuck with me as an experience of a subjective experience of a family member of someone who goes missing. And she said that it's just this cyclical open-ended trauma. She never gets a resolution. You know, you can go to therapy and you can talk about this, but she has no body. She has no gravesite. She has no answers as to if more is alive or dead. Of course she has her feelings one way or the other, but she doesn't have this resolution. And the thing is, it's really hard to heal from trauma when it's open-ended there's no closure here and then a little salt in the open wound recently uh the state of new hampshire denied a, a historical marker for for that spot for for more murray and i think that it was uh also very hurtful to the murrays and uh i know that there's a betty and barney hill um road marker there and uh or somewhere up there um and so if there can be one for that you know why not for this um, but I guess it goes back to that same argument about the traffic and things like that. So I, I don't know. I mean, you know, short of uh, putting a parking garage in right there, which obviously isn't going to happen. This is like a almost like a New Hampshire versus Massachusetts problem. Yeah, it's unfortunate because, yeah, I agree with you. I think if they could put a historical marker there, there is something about the Moore Murray case that you two have basically, you know, been at the forefront of that this has really captured the hearts and minds of an entire nation, people across the globe. People want to know what happened to Moore. So this is significant to so many people to say that this isn't a part of history and won't continue to be significant is is, I think, a fallacy. But I think it goes to what you're saying. There's a Betty and Barney Hill one, but at this time, I really doubt there's that many people stopping at the Betty and Barney Hill historical marker. But as far as the Maura Murray one goes, it's still very much in the public consciousness. People are still talking about it. Maybe if that diminishes, if it ever does, then maybe they'll reconsider that. But I, I personally think that it's an important moment in history. More is important. And all these people that follow her case kind of deserve that. Yeah. I wish there was a more obvious answer on where to put something like that. You know, maybe at the start of that road or at the end of the road. I yeah, just logistically, when I start thinking about it, I just I confuse myself because I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the, the the Betty and Barney Hill historical marker is there because it's fun. Right. I mean, that's a tourist attraction. It's, you know, a, a couple that claims to have been abducted by a UFO and now, 
New Hampshire, this little town in New Hampshire has their own like mini Roswell. Uh, and you can see that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that you can see them approving that because it's it's not a site where people are going to start snapping pictures in front of other people's homes and possibly knocking on doors and saying, you know, were you here when when uh, the UFO flew over and snatched them up from their car? You know, no one's going to do that. But they do that at that area on Route 112 where Mora's car was found. Um, so, I, and I don't want to say it's like a tourism thing, but when they proposed it for Benny and Barney Hill, I can imagine them saying, yeah, that's, you know, it's a tourism thing. And they don't want this to become a tourism thing. Yeah, and like I don't know what their historical marker looks like from how you've described it. It's not just like a marker on the side of the road. It's like an actual kind of mini town or industry that's been kind of cropped up around this whole alien abduction thing. And I am familiar with their story, but I didn't know that they had like a mini Roswell there. So yeah, they don't want they don't want a mini like missing Maura Murray town because these people, it, for one, it's unsafe in the area. Two, the residents there don't want this. So yeah, I totally get what you're saying. It, it basically is just a roadside marker um, for Betty and Barney Hill. Um, but I, th- I do think you can probably find some souvenirs and things like that in some of the shops in that area. Um, but with Maura Murray's disappearance, this is why I guess I, I, I said it, it seems like it could be a little bit of a New Hampshire versus Massachusetts thing. Um, Maura Murray and her family are from Massachusetts. The Murray family sued the state of New Hampshire at one point. So I don't know that the state of New Hampshire is ready to, you know, grant grant the, the Murrays something that they want um, that could cause them additional problems, especially when New Hampshire probably looks at it a whole different way. They, they look at it like it's something we couldn't solve. So that is not something they want to memorialize in that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's this dichotomy of meaning, right? What it means to, you know, Massachusetts, a.k.a. the Murrays, is it means that this is a marker, this is symbolic of the last place that Mora was. This is something that they should have every right to be able to go and visit, and I can't understand how that feels for them. So I completely understand that. And like you said, the other side is New Hampshire, where they're going, okay, like, do we really want to draw attention to the fact that this is still an unsolved missing persons case? We haven't been able to solve it. Do we want everybody coming here, snapping pictures and going, oh, these guys still haven't figured it out? So you're right. There may be some of that going on as well. I love it when we talk about uh, Maura Murray's disappearance and we venture into topics that aren't discussed on the regular like this like the 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 mindset of the two states and how they'd handle something like a, a memorial marker regardless of where it is you know if you're trying to get the state to allow you to put something up then they ha- they look at it and they say well why are we reminding everybody that we couldn't solve this. You know, that has to run somewhere through their minds. They're not going to allow that. It really fascinates me how we can talk about this and be a part of this and almost on a daily basis uncover another layer that we've never talked about. That's like a total revelation again because it seems so easy from the outside 
to say, yeah, why wouldn't the state just put put something up? Just do the family a favor. But then you look at the backstory of the relationship between the family and the state and you say to yourself, yeah, it's obvious. Like, <laughs> why would they now because of that relationship? Yeah, it's true. There's so many different things. When you start to go into the intricacies and the little details and start exploring these things, it can really kind of branch off. It's sort of like a spider web, right? You start at the central point and then you start exploring one thing and then it branches off into 10 other things. I agree. Yeah. And I, I kind of think it's a little natural up there, too. And you're talking northern New Hampshire, right? And Massachusetts is on the southern border. I mean, Lance, if we're going to get into this a little bit, let's get into it just a little bit. There is that rivalry when you are up there as a Massachusetts resident and you're, say, on vacation, um, you you might, I don't know, like wearing a Red Sox hat into those shops like your people are going to look at you. Oh, you're you're from the city. You know, like uh, that, that's a thing. Like, I swear to God, that's kind of a thing. Um, I remember one time I was driving up to New Hampshire for a job and I was coming from Massachusetts to New Hampshire and there's a, a state trooper just sitting under the sign, welcome to New Hampshire, pointing his radar gun at the New Ham- the Massachusetts drivers. Who are cr- it's like, wow, that's a that's a great welcome. Uh, thank- yeah, I'm happy to be here. Like, I, I feel real welcome. That's aggressive. <laughs> yeah, just going to set you straight. Just set you straight. You know, know your place when you cross that border. But you, you're, you're, you're totally right. Like, it is a weird um, position for, for them to be in, I think, because, okay, all the things we talked about, all the dichotomies and everything, people move up to the White Mountains, especially in those small towns that surround the White Mountains, like North Haverhill and Woodstock and... Uh, Bath, you know, all of those small towns, people mostly move up there to get away from the city and to have some form of isolation. However, that area doesn't exist without the tourism from people coming from uh, mostly Massachusetts. Uh, In the summer, it's hiking. Uh, In the winter, it's uh, skiing. So and, and you're sort of positioned right there in the middle of the state, northern middle. So people from Massachusetts will come up probably have people from Vermont, a little bit from Maine, any of people from Canada. So you, when you move there, you realize, okay, I'm going to experience a, a, a swell of tourists from all over. That's not why I moved here. I moved here for the beautiful scenery and the isolation, but my taxes are low and, and my living is like it is because this area is sustained by tourism. So it's an interesting position to be in by choice. It's a bit paradoxical, right? Because you've, you're there because and everything, you're in this position to be able to be in this almost isolated, desolate place where you can kind of have this element of anonymity. But you have that because of the influx of people to the mountains and because of it being a tourist attraction. So it is strangely paradoxical that you then hate the influx of people. But yeah, it's it's just a really strange dynamic. I will say, though, some really fine restaurants there, especially in the uh, Woodstock area. Just those fun, like comfort style restaurants. Uh, Oh, yeah. Especially the one where the guy who is from Massachusetts had his little place there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we shot there for the TV show. Yeah. I do forget the name of that off the top of my head. But there are a million great breweries up there. Hobbs, I know, is one great one. I, Shillings. There's just a ton. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, the Woodstock Inn. 
It's a great place to visit. It really is. Rivalry aside, of course. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.